0: Well, good morning, everybody. How are we am I, am I on? I don't know. Probably don't need to be on, do I? I'm loud enough. Well, uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the teeny little book of Jude. It's almost at the very end of the Bible, just before the book of Revelation. And if it takes up more than one page in your Bible, that's probably because you have copious amounts of study notes to go along with it, because it is, it is that brief. Uh, While you're flipping there, let me ask you a few questions. How many of you have ever heard a sermon series on the book of Jude? Not just one sermon covering a portion of the scripture, or even one sermon covering the entirety of the book of Jude, but how many of you have heard a sermon series, multiple sermons covering the book of Jude? One. One? We got one. Anyone else? Sermon series on the book? Okay, well, guess what? You're about to, okay? going to be good. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, and, and that's really that's frankly not surprising. The book of Jude is a book that's typically unfamiliar to most, most people. Uh, there are certainly passages and phrases that, that resonate with us from our memory, maybe as children. There's, of course, the benediction at the end, which is one of my favorite benedictions. But other than that benediction and this phrase we're going to look at today, uh, contending for the faith, Jude is, is generally unfamiliar to most of us. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and take a moment now to encourage you to read ahead for next week. Is Wayne in here? No. So, so Wayne, Wayne's preaching next week, Lord willing, and he's going to be taking us through verses 5 through 16, and it's going to be a great privilege for him because he gets to address such, uh, what's the best word, uh, oddities, maybe, is the best word. He gets to address oddities uh, like like, tell me if you remember this from, from Vacation Bible School. Michael, the archangel, and Satan arguing over the body of Moses. you, you remember that with the flannel board, right? The teacher would go the flannel board and would we'll talk about Michael and the archangel arguing over Moses' body. No, none of us have ever heard about that, right? Because it's crazy and it seems off the wall to us. But Wayne's going to talk about that next week. So read ahead. If you have study notes, I'd encourage you to go ahead and read the study notes before you get here as well. And, uh, and we'll look into that. Now. If you're able to do math quickly, which I am not, you may have noticed that today we're only going to go through four verses, and the reason we're only going to go through four verses is because last time I preached, we tried to go through about 12 verses of 1 Peter, and I think we got through point one. So we're going to just do the first four verses today, uh, because that's the only way we'd make it through. I can't imagine if I had Wayne's test tomorrow how long we would be here. Now, this phrase, contending for the faith, that most of us are familiar with, kind of in isolation out of Jude, uh, growing up, I associated that phrase with apologetics, that is, uh, the defense of the faith, usually over and against a hostile world, a world that is in rebellion against God and denies the gospel and really hates God and all things associated with God and with his holiness and the holiness that he requires of his people. Uh, and, and that's important. It's important that we be able to give a defense, an apology of the faith when confronted. You know, we're, we're admonished whenever asked to be ready to give a defense of the hope that, is, that is within us. And certainly, we need to be able to do that. But, but that's not the primary meaning of this phrase in the book of Jude. Ultimately, Jude is not, most importantly, first and foremost, speaking about a defense to a world that disbelieves god that denies jesus christ. So we're going to look at that today and maybe challenge some of our assumptions about what this phrase contending for the faith means. The book that Jude wrote here was a, it was a letter. It's only 25 verses, but it is chock full. It is a jam-packed 25 verses. Some of it familiar like we've talked about, some of it strange like we've already addressed, but ultimately all of it is helpful and instructive for you and Let's read these first four verses together, and then we'll dive in. Jude writes, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you a main point today before we dive in and then give you a brief outline, so hopefully that will help you follow Along as we go. I know that sometimes I can be a little difficult to follow. So hopefully this will give us some some guardrails to keep us on track with our time together this morning. Okay? Here's the main point that I think Jude is making to you and I, and ultimately to the people that he first wrote this letter to. Losing the gospel doesn't happen overnight. And it doesn't happen under a flashing warning light or sign. There are rarely fireworks or cannon shots to, to signal its abandonment. The loss of the gospel happens slowly and subtly and you and I are charged with its defense. So just to, just to wrap that up again here, quick quickly, losing the gospel doesn't happen overnight. Nothing typically signals its abandonment, it happens slowly and subtly, and you and I are charged with its defense. Here's the outline for this morning. Number one, in verse one, really just the first section of verse one, we have an authority established. Second, in verses three and four, we have a change of course and a call to action. And then finally, the second portion of verse one and two, we have an encouraging indicative. So I'll give those to you again. Number one, an authority established, Number two, a change, of course, and a call to action. And then finally, an encouraging indicative. In verse one, as is usual in uh, kind of Greco-Roman letters of the age, the author identifies himself. Now, what is unusual about this greeting and this identification is that it kind of goes on and on and on and on. I find in Jude a kindred spirit because I tend to go on and on and on, and on. But typically, the greetings that we would find at the beginning of letters from this age were succinct. They were to the point. Josh, writing to Bethany, hey, how you doing? Okay, that was about the extent of it. But Jude, he goes on, and on, and on in this this greeting. He begins with this, his name, which of course is Jude, He moves on to his position. He says, a servant of Jesus Christ, and then finally his relation, a brother of James. Let's look look at those three uh, bit by bit here just a little bit. First of all, his name, Jude. Jude is Aramaic for Judas. Now, you can understand why Jude would rather go by Jude than Judas, uh, following the, the betrayal and, of course, the death and resurrection of our Lord. Judas that's a name that has a little bit of a connotation, right? Even in our society today, we refer to people, well, I don't, of course, and I'm sure you don't. We're far too sanctified to do that. But other people who are less sanctified than you and I, we will refer to people as a Judas, right? Someone who, who is a, a betrayer, someone who gives over those whom he loves for you know, money, monetary gain, or power position. And so we can understand why Jude might want to distance hissel- himself from that particular pronunciation and spelling of his name, and also why the church... Uh, following him would wish to do so. But this name, it's uh, Judah, is another, another rend- rendering of it in Hebrew, which of course means praised. So we have Jude here, praised. And his position is what? He is a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, if, you, if you've been in church for any length of time, if you, if you know a little bit of Greek, most people who go to Southern Baptist churches know at least a little bit of Greek. There's this Greek word that we throw around a lot called diakonos, right? Is anyone anyone familiar with what diakonos is translated into in English? Deacon. That's that's where we get the office of deacon. Now, we would expect the Greek word here to be diakonos, that Greek word for deacon, but it's not. It's a different word. It's a a different kind of servant. The servant that Jude refers to himself as here is a doulos. Now, what's different between a, a diakonos and a doulos? in Greek. A diakonos, we know, is a servant. A doulos is a slave. A doulos is a a bond servant. One Bible dictionary I was looking at, they defined a doulos as this, a male or female servant who is under obligation to render obedience to a master. It's a state of being completely controlled by some other individual or some other thing. But it's not, this, it's not this enslavement that is against one's will or against one's desire. You may remember in the Old Testament, we're not going to look at these verses. I'll just recap them for you. You can jot them down and look at them later if you'd like to. But in Exodus 21 and Deuteronomy 15 and in a few other places, we have, we have laws for these due losses for these bond servants. If someone were to be sold into slavery... And they, they loved their master, and they loved his family because he cared for them well. At the Jubilee year, the seventh year after his enslavement, when he had the opportunity to be free, he could opt, or she could opt, to stay with their master because of their great affection for them. So what they would do is they would take an awl, which is just something you punch holes in leather with, and they would take their awl, their earlobe, and a doorpost, and hopefully this is not going to be too graphic, and they would just ram that awl into the doorpost through their ears, to signify that they desire to stay with that master because of their great love and affection for them. This is the type of loss, the type of servant, the type of slave that Jude is referring to himself as here. He is not a slave against his will, but rather he gratefully is a slave to whom? Jesus Christ. Completely controlled by him. And then finally, he refers to his relationship. He is related by birth to James. This is, not, uh, this is James who is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And if you know your church history, James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, is in fact the earthly brother of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So isn't it striking? So, so by extension, if James is Christ's earthly brother, who is Jude? Christ's earthly brother. We would expect Jude to open up his letter and say, Jude, the brother of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, sitting exalted in the throne room of heaven above, right? But that's not what he says. He says, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He establishes his authority with these two, this, with these two comparisons and these two identifications because he's going to say some remarkable and interesting things later on in the letter, so he certainly better have his authority established. It's all well and good in Jude's mind to be Jesus' brother, but ultimately he would much rather be Jesus' slave. And that is the result, certainly, of the fact that Jesus has died for him and saved himself from his sin. So that's the introduction. We got through that introduction quick, didn't, didn't we? Much faster than last time. Let's move down here. We're, we're going to jump over a few verses, and then we're going to double back and look at them here in a minute. Jump with me down to verses 3 and four, and we begin with now a change of course. In verse 3, Jude writes, Beloved, though I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you. He begins here by addressing his readers as beloved, which echoes verse 1, which we'll look at in a little bit. Uh, where they're referred to as beloved in God. Now, certainly this is a phrase that is a term of affection and endearment from Jude to the people that he is writing to. But more importantly, it also signifies that they are loved by God. And they are loved especially and uniquely. And of course, this is true of all genuine believers in Jesus Christ. There is a unique and special affection and love that God has for us beloved, he writes to them. And then he goes on and he explains he had set out to write this letter to the beloved on a totally different theme, on a totally different topic than what we have here today and what Wayne will explain later and what Fish will wrap up in two weeks. He says he had intended to write to them about their common salvation. So so what is this common salvation that Jude had intended to write to them about? I think there's two ways we can look at it, and two ways we can rightly understand it. It's a both and situation. This common salvation is what we would refer to as the eschatological hope of the church, the, the end times hope. That's what eschatology is talking about the end of time when Christ comes back to take his church home. So it is the eschatological hope of the church, and at the same time, not only is it a hope way out there in the future, but it is the present reality of our day to day existence. It is our Present hope all at once. We subsist in this day and age. We are sustained by this life, by our salvation through Jesus Christ, through the gospel. And at the same time, we look forward to that day at the end of time, during the eschaton, when all the ransomed church of God will be saved to sin no more. We fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter, of our faith, and we look forward to His coming. And He says, I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. Now, that is something to talk about, to write about, to discuss eagerly, isn't it? Jesus Christ coming again in glory to take His church home. And I think it's unfortunately something that is far too often at the back of my mind, maybe also at the back of yours. So that's what He had intended to write about, this common salvation. But instead, He's, he's turned aside. He has to change course. He says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you. Necessary. This word necessary, it means constrained, compelled. Jude had no other option but to divert, but to change course and write to them about something other than the common salvation he had intended to write to them about. So what does Jude have to say? What does he have to write to them to do that is so important? He says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. This word contend, it's it's an interesting word. Paul uses a similar phrase in 1 Timothy 6.12. He writes encouraging Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. That's the phrase there, contend. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and a, about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. It, it has kind of a, a flavor of, uh, of military and athletics along with it, this word contend. And ultimately, Paul uses it to write to Timothy about his salvation. So certainly it's a, a word that's imbued with a lot of strength and a lot of importance. It regards uh, weighty issues, so he writes, contend, and you have to contend for the faith. Now, when we generally think of this word faith, we think of that moment wherein we believe the gospel and we repent of our sins and turn to Christ. And that is one meaning of the word faith. But there's another meaning for the word faith in the New Testament. And that secondary meaning, which is, which is what Jude is using here, refers to kind of the, the canon of doctrine, the, the system of beliefs that makes up the gospel of Jesus Christ, that, that makes up, that, uh, that is the sum and total of the Christian faith. And now, it's important for us to consider that, because we live in a day and age where people don't like absolutes, where people don't like to be told there is a certain thing you must believe. Whether it's regarding faith in Christ or Islam or politics or anything, we live in a day and age where everything is relative and, and truth is what we make it out to be. But right here, Jude is telling us it is, it is something different. Paul speaks about this as well, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He writes to the church at Rome, and he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect so there are some things that fall within the canon of scripture and we believe because we are transformed by the spirit of God and there are other things that fall outside of the canon of Scripture that fall outside of the faith, the system of beliefs that Jude refers to here, and in believing them, we are conformed to the world. So, how is it that we know what the faith that Jude refers to consists of? He says, Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. If you go and if you read an introduction in your study Bible to the book of Jude, you will find that over the course of Christian history, there has been some debate amongst scholars about when exactly the book of Jude was written, and as a result, by extension, who actually wrote the book of Jude. There are some scholars who say that Jude didn't actually write the book of Jude. The reason they say this is because Jude refers here again to the faith, to this set of doctrines, and they say, well, there hasn't been a set of doctrines laid down. The councils haven't met. We don't have the, the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed, Athanasian Creed and the Apostles' Creed. We don't have the councils that codified the Christian faith, so certainly it must have taken place after those things historically. Well, that's, that's, that's not the case. That, that doesn't require that. It doesn't entail it. Instead, what Jude is urging here is to fight for the faith that they heard from The apostles, to fight for the faith that the prophets spoke of in the Old Testament, and to fight for that faith that Jesus Christ himself proclaimed when he walked here on this earth. And so, this is what this change of course results in. Rather than speaking about the common salvation, he says, instead, contend, fight for that faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, that was finally delivered to the saints. And then he turns and he gives them a call to action. So what precipitates this change, of course? Why is Jude compelled to write to them to contend for the faith? Here he goes. He says, certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord." Jesus Christ. There is a crisis in the life of the church that required this dramatic course change, that compelled Jude to write to address it. Rather than writing to address all these lovely notions about our common salvation, and they are, instead he had to address hard things for these people. Because false teachers have made their way into the church, and they now threaten not only the unity of the church, but the very foundation of the church which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says certain people have crept in unnoticed. And this is how false teachers typically gain entrance into the church. It would be so much easier for us if false teachers had had a t-shirt on or, or a tattoo on their forehead, but that just isn't the case. They creep in unnoticed. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul counters a group of people called the, the super-apostles. I, I don't know if that's a name that Paul gave them or a name they, they gave themselves. Um, but he, he writes to address these super-apostles at the church in Corinth. And he says such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to to their deeds. Our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 7 says this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you'll recognize them by their fruits. So these false teachers, they misrepresent themselves, and like Satan... In the Garden of Eden, they twist God's Word, and then they cause God's people to doubt Him. You remember back there in the garden, we won't turn back together. I'll just kind of paraphrase it for you. But Eve is standing there. Satan slithers up to her, and he says to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, of course that's not what God said. God said you can eat of all the trees in the garden, save one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So Eve corrects him, and the serpent says to her, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and knowing evil. So Satan here, just like those false prophets, they twist God's word. They're well acquainted. And then, in doing so, they cause God's people to doubt him. These false prophets creep in unnoticed. And this is why Jude must write. Lest the church he writes to, lest lest we become lax and lazy, lest we rest on our laurels while we wait for Jesus Christ to return. D.A. Carson has helpfully uh, said from experience, his friend Paul Hebert grew up in the Mennonite Church, and this is how Paul Hebert characterized the loss of the gospel in the Mennonite Church. He says, one generation believes the gospel, the next generation assumes the gospel, the following generation denies the gospel. It's a slow It's a subtle change that we must be on the lookout for. And now, this is how he characterizes, this is how Jude characterizes these individuals. He says, they were long ago designated for this condemnation. This is a needful reminder for you and I, lest we forget, as we, well, I'll say I, as I am prone to do, that the Lord is never caught napping. He's not kicked back on his throne unawares of what is going on in our lives or in his church or in this world he has created. He was not unaware when Satan slithered into the garden and he was not unaware when these false prophets came and began to lead his people astray. In fact, God had designated, he had assigned, he had set apart these false prophets for the condemnation, for the judgment, that will befall them for their wicked deeds. He goes on to explain, they are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They are ungodly. They are are contra-God. They are opposed to God. They are the opposite of God. They pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. Just, Just like Israel's rebellion in the Old Testament, time and time and time again. Here, this rebellion that these false prophets engage in, this rebellion and wickedness is described in in relation to to sexual sin. In the Old Testament, time and time and time again, as Israel went away and worshipped false gods, they were adulterers. They had turned aside from their true love. And so here, Jude draws the same connection in the mind of his readers. Just like Israel wandered away, so these people would lead you astray as well this perversion that they have for the gospel, and and you see this word sensuality in here, this this indicates to us that these men were most likely what we would call libertines. They they did whatever they pleased at any moment of the day. They they lived these licentious uh, lifestyles of fornication and adultery and various things, all the while claiming the grace of God. I don't know if you've ever uh, experienced or known anyone who's, who's done this. They'll, they'll excuse their sin. Maybe, maybe you've done it. I mean, heaven knows that I've done it a time or two, right? We're all very good at rationalizing away our sin. Somehow excusing ourselves and claiming all the while that the grace of God covers it. And while yes it does, that is is a truth that we know it's a theological foundation for us. We know that we are saved by God's grace. God's grace is not a license to sin. God's grace is not a license to live lives that bring shame and dishonor upon the Savior who has died for us. And that's exactly what these people were doing. They were bringing low the name of Jesus by the lives that they led. Now that's, that's, a, that's a pretty weighty load right there. Yeah. I'm, I don't know about you, but I'm not feeling too great right now. I'm not feeling a lot of optimism or hope for the church that Jude writes to, or even for the church today, knowing that false teachers are still trying to creep their way in. But let's go back and let's look at the second portion of verse 1 and 2. And there we see an encouraging indicative. When I say indicative, uh, I mean characteristics that Jude describes. He, he lays out here what the reality is for believers in Christ and why we should have hope in the midst of that reality. This is how Jude describes his believers that he writes to. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept, for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So Jude writes his letter of warning and exhortation about these false apostles, of these false uh, prophets and these false teachers. He writes it to those who are called. The, the word here for called is the same word from which we get church, ecclesia, eccaleo, the ones who are called out, called out of darkness and into His marvelous light, as Peter writes. And what a joy it is to be reminded that we have been called, that God did not leave us in our sins, awaiting the just condemnation and judgment that we deserve, but rather, in His grace, He called us and he adopted us as his sons and daughters. So that rather than, rather than bowing our knees to our judge, we bow our knees to our king. Rather than being the footstool of Christ, we're invited to sit down at his feasting table. What a joy it is to be called out of darkness. Amen. He says they are beloved in God. And we spoke about that a, a little bit earlier, that... That God had loved them with a a particular love with which He loves His own. And they are kept for Jesus Christ. This word kept is a wonderful word. It speaks about our position being secure as under lock and key. We are guarded for Jesus Christ. For Jesus Christ. For when He comes again to take His church home. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says this in chapter 10, beginning in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The reason it is so important that we are kept, that we are guarded, the reason we should take hope and encouragement from this is written about in Colossians and Ephesians. We'll just look at one of them now. In Colossians 1, 21 and 23, Paul writes, You who once were alienated and hostile in mind in their rebellion against God, doing evil deeds, you he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. And here's why in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him, if indeed you continue in the faith. Jesus Christ, He desires at the end of time to present to Himself and for Himself a bride that is spotless a spotless and without blemish, a, blo- a bride arrayed in glorious white garments, and to that end He keeps us under lock and key. To that end, he guards us and protects us against Satan and against his minions. And the, then Jude wraps this up. And he has this prayer, this wish for his readers. He says, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Tom Schreiner, in his commentary, he, he does a, a beautiful job of explaining these three words, mercy, peace, and love. And here's what, here's what he says. They needed mercy because they would only resist by God's mercy and would need that mercy in order to extend it to those who had been captivated by false teachers. They needed God's peace because these false teachers sow division and discord wherever they go, and they needed God's love because these intruders cared only for themselves and their own appetites. And in doing so, They denied the gospel. And so for us, it's as if he says this according to God's mercy, through the sustaining power of his peace, and because of the great love with which he loved us, we are kept for Christ. And by God's grace and by his sustaining power, we, like the Apostle Paul, will say at the end of our course, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have loved His appearing. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank You for the message of the Gospel. The message that sinners, because of your great grace, may be saved from their just condemnation. We thank you for the promise that you have given. That we are called out and because we are called, because we are beloved, we are kept in Christ. And nothing will ever be able to snatch us out of your hand. How great is the love that you have lavished upon And so we pray today, Spirit, strengthen us, give us resolve, so that when false teachers come, we may stand and we may condemn them and the false gospel they proclaim, so that at the end of time, when your son Jesus comes again, he will present a bride adorned, radiant in splendor, spotless, perfect, and without blemish. And we thank you for that hope that is ours. That through Jesus Christ, though we may die, we shall live. Though the world may rail against us, He will hold us fast. And we pray, Spirit, that Jesus Christ indeed would be all we need and that He would be all that we have. And we pray these things in the precious name of our Savior. Amen. If you've uh, if you're a guest